0: Well, good morning. Matthew said he goes a little overboard on 4th of July. That's the understatement of the century. I may or may not have a picture on my phone of red, white, and blue like light-up glasses, a American flag on a long pole, a sparkler in one hand, cut-off jeans, American flag shirt, and American flag boots on my phone that I may or may not share one day. Um, So yeah, I love that guy. So much fun celebrating 4th of July, but a little bit scary at the same time. (laughs) If we've never met before, my name is Chris Thayer and I'm our pastor of discipleship. So glad to be able to connect with you all this morning. Uh, Really glad to be able to walk through the book of Jonah. If you have your Bibles with you, that's great. You can go ahead and open your Bibles up to Jonah chapter three. If you don't have your Bibles with you, that's okay. The words are gonna be up on the screen at just the right time. And we go through that effort to ensure that you're able to encounter scripture because a couple of things that we believe about the Bible here at Good Shepherd. And the first one is this, even though this looks like a book, it's actually not a book. It's a library. It's a collection of 66 different books written by a number of different authors over a long period of time. And most importantly, it's written in different writing styles. And when we're in the book of Jonah, we're in a section of the library that's dedicated to a type of literature that most closely resembles what we would call satire. It's full of all kinds of humor, all kinds of irony, not only to get us to laugh at the punchline, which is Jonah, but also to break down our barriers just enough so that we see how we resemble the punchline. Jonah's such a phenomenal book, the only book of the Bible to be named after the villain of the story, and we've seen that over the last two weeks, and today we're gonna see even more why that's the case, as he turns that up to 11. But that's the one thing, Bible isn't a book, is a library. The next thing that we like to remind ourselves of, virtually every week, and you might not believe this yet, and that's okay, we simply wanna let you know where we stand in leadership here at Good Shepherd, and that's that we believe that unlike any other book, or any other library that this one is uniquely inspired, eternal, and true. So whenever we read it together, we do this sort of odd thing where we lift it up. It's not because we worship the Bible we don't, but we do worship the God who inspired the Bible. And we wanna show in a tangible way that we stand alone under his authority and nobody else's. The other thing that I wanna do before I say anything else is I wanna go before the Lord in prayer. So would you pray with me and for me as I pray with you and for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Lord, I confess that I am weak. Uh, Lord, I, I give you my nervousness, I give you my anxiousness, I give you who I am. And I thank you that when I am weak, you are strong. And I thank you that Jesus is the only celebrity that any of us need. And so we pray that he would take center stage today. Heavenly Father, I pray that by everything that happens in this space today, that the name of Jesus would be honored and glorified and lifted up, that your people would be encouraged and challenged. God, you are good. And all we have to bring is a hallelujah. So we thank you for that. And thank you for the opportunity to be able to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen, amen. My wife and I, we we moved to Charlotte about 18 years ago. And when my wife and I moved to Charlotte 18 years ago, I'm looking at my wife and laughing. Uh, When we moved to Charlotte 18 years ago, we lived over off of Pineville Matthews Road. And I had 12 miles to get from my apartment to uptown where I worked. And I had to fight through all kinds of traffic to do that. 51 was just as terrible as it is today, 485 was even worse, if you can believe it, because there was only two lanes going each way, and I was going with traffic to uptown and with traffic back home. I saw road rage. I saw cars getting run off the side of the road, all kinds of terribleness, and it made my blood pressure rise and my patience fall. And the reason for that, one of the reasons for that is I grew up in a no-stoplight town. People talk all the time about one-stoplight towns that may as well have been a big city to me because we didn't have any stoplights where I grew up. We only had stop signs. And in order for me to go the same 12 miles, that would get me all the way to my buddy Ben's house, one of my best friends that I grew up with. And on my way to Ben's house, 12 miles, I would pass one stop sign and maybe 12 cars on the entire trip over 12 miles. And I knew the drivers of at least half, <laughs> of at least half of those cars. So when I moved to Charlotte, North Carolina and lived over in Pineville, Matthews Road, that was all kinds of new, all kinds of terrible. I did not like it. I was getting impatient Impatient. I was getting impatient. I was getting impatient Words are hard sometimes, it's okay. I I would get impatient on the road, didn't like it at all, so when my wife and I decided to move, not away from Charlotte, thank the Lord, because we made so many amazing friends here along the way, but when we decided to move, we moved to Steel Creek. And why did we move to Steel Creek at the time? Well, because south of Good Shepherd, there was almost nothing. There was no Rivergate, there was no Best Buy, there was no Target, there was no, there was two grocery stores, no Chick-fil-A. So you can imagine how the last 17 years have gone for me in Steel Creek with my blood pressure and with my patients. I can't wait in line at Chick-fil-A without seeing more than 12 cars like I saw in 12 miles where I grew up. So due to a combination of that background of how I grew up and my own lack of enjoying traffic and driving to begin with, coupled that with the fact that I'm generally just not patient and don't like it when things don't go my way when I'm in the car, I'm not always the best driver in the world. And maybe, no, I, would, I take that back. I'm a great driver, I think. Uh, My wife might disagree with you, but I'm not always patient with other drivers on the road. So for instance, my wife and I, we went to Target on one Sunday after church. And if you want to find a way to lose your religion after going to church, (laughs) that's the way to do it. So we go to Target, we get our groceries, we pack up our two kids and me and my wife in our van and along with the groceries, and we try to take a right out of the Target parking lot. Yeah, that doesn't happen. So I'm, I'm trying to take a right, and as I'm trying to take a right, just car after car after car is coming from my left, and I'm not able to take a right-hand turn. So my blood pressure is rising, my patience is going down, until finally a car comes up from my left, and they take a right. Well, I would have been able to get out in front of them and make my right-hand turn, if they had used their blinker, but they act like 95% of the rest of Charlotte drivers and treat blinkers as optional safety equipment that we don't need to use. So they don't use their blinker, they turn in, I miss my opportunity to turn right, and I get frustrated. And I say, way to use your blinker, buddy. Now, I, I promise my window was up, He couldn't hear me. The only people that could hear me were in the car with me. I guess I just wanted them to suffer with me. So I get frustrated and then I proceed to rant. As I'm waiting for the next cars to go by, I proceed to rant about how nobody in Charlotte ever uses their blinker when they're driving. Why can't Charlotte drivers just learn how to drive properly? Well, eventually, yes, thank you so much. We we should go to Target together after church. (laughs) So I have to wait, I don't know, maybe five more cars finally before I'm able to turn. It wasn't that long, and I wasn't that patient, and I'm not that proud of it, but I'm finally able to turn, and when I turn, my wife starts to laugh. Now, I'm not talking about a chuckle or a little chortle. My wife starts to belly laugh from the passenger seat beside me, and so I grin, look over, wonder what's so funny. Maybe our kids said something in the back seat. I don't know what's going on. Well, I grinned until I saw where she was looking, which was in the dashboard right in front of me. Because after spending the last five cars complaining about traffic and, and the drivers never using blinkers, what did I not use when I took my right hand turn? My blinker. That's right, whoever said it over here did not use my blinker. But, but that's how it goes sometimes, isn't it? We, we struggle giving grace to other people, all the while not recognizing the very same ways that we require that same exact grace, oftentimes for the same situation. It's when we get frustrated at our spouses for escalating arguments, uh, avoiding topics or negatively interpreting the things that we say, all the while not seeing the ways that our spouse gets frustrated at us for the same thing. It's getting upset at the behavior of our children, all the while not recognizing that they learn the very patterns of behavior that they're exhibiting from us. It's it's hating how people around you are so self-centered, not recognizing that the reason that you see that is because you are so self-centered and I am stepping in my own circle when it comes to that one right there. So the question for me and for you and for all of us is, is how do we have the kinds of grace for other people that God calls us to. How do we actually have what the Apostle Paul would talk about, the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be taken advantage of, but made himself humble to death, even death on a cross. Paul says, you should have that same kind of attitude, and when I'm driving down the road, I wonder how in the world can I have that kind of humility? How can I have that kind of grace for other people when I don't even see the ways that I need it myself? So I'm in that boat and you're in that boat. All of us are there together. And Jonah actually speaks into this very topic. And the author of Jonah, I think, is trying to give you and me and all of us a really good hint on how we respond in that kind of a situation, how we can see what the problem is and actually respond to that problem in a way that God has designed us to do so. Now, in order to do that, we're gonna open up Jonah chapter three. So again, if you got your Bibles, that's great. Open them up to Jonah chapter three. But to give you a quick recap, Over the last two weeks, we've been walking through the book of Jonah, and we've learned that our friend Jonah is actually the villain in the story. And it all starts off at the very beginning when God calls Jonah to go to the people of Nineveh, which would eventually become the capital of the Assyrian Empire. All kinds of wicked people, all kinds of terribleness that happened in the Assyrian Empire. They wanted to conquer the known world and didn't care who they hurt to do so. So they made all kinds of enemies and Jonah is called by God as one of his prophets to go and speak to that group of people And and Jonah hears God and says, that's cool. I'm going as far in the opposite direction as I can. He flees for Tarshish. He hops on a boat onto the Mediterranean Sea to go as far away from Nineveh as he can. Well, because he's being a disobedient prophet, God sends a storm. The storm threatens to wreck the ship. Jonah convinces the the sailors to toss him overboard. So Jonah ends up in the drink when the storm calms down. The Lord sends a giant fish to swallow Jonah inside of the belly of the fish for the very first time. Jonah actually talks to God, but we learned last week that Jonah never does the one thing in that prayer that he should have done, which was repent. He never admitted to to God why he was in that mess to begin with. And it was at the end of our time last week that the Lord and the fish could take no more, as one of my good friends said, and vomited Jonah onto the beach. And the Lord says to Jonah one more time, I don't want your platitudes, I don't want your sacrifice, I would prefer for you to obey, go to the ancient city of Nineveh and preach against it. So we're left wondering, what's our friend, the villain, Jonah, going to do now that God has told him again to go to the ancient city of Nineveh? Well, here's what happens. In Jonah chapter three, starting in verse three, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. For the very first time, Jonah actually obeys God. And we gotta get all the way to chapter three to do it, but hang on for just a second because it's about to get a little comical. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days in Nineveh will be overturned. Now, I said it's about to get comical. It's not really the content of Jonah's sermon. It's really what Jonah did inside of that sermon or the way that he chose to obey God because Jonah's sermon was five words. In the ancient Hebrew language which Jonah was written in, Jonah only says five words, in 40 days, Nineveh overturned. That's it. All of this effort, all of this hard work running away from God, God tells him to obey and Jonah says, fine, I'll obey, but only just. I'm only gonna give him a five-word sermon. That's it, five words. In 40 days, Nineveh overturned. So how in the world are the Ninevites, this this difficult, obstinate, and wicked people going to respond to Jonah's five-word sermon? Well, in verse five, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And sackcloth and ashes are, are a sign of extreme mourning. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh, even the king. Parish. Jonah runs away from the Lord after getting all of this correction, gives a five-word sermon to this group of people that he can't stand. And in five words, in five words, these Ninevites, from the king to the cows, repent. Every single one of them. Jonah hasn't yet repented. In our entire book, the Ninevites are given five words and they actually repent and it's again it's not even the people the king said just to cover our bases let's even make the cows put on sackcloth and not eat or drink either and so we wonder okay well God sends Jonah to preach to the Ninevites he preaches five words the Ninevites turn how's God going to respond in this story well in verse 10 when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. And I love verse 10. I love it so much. And why do I love verse 10? I love verse 10 because one of the questions that I get all the time about the library that we call the Bible, people come up to me all the time and they say, hey, Chris, how come? How come God is so full of wrath and anger in the Old Testament and grace and mercy in the New Testament? And what verse 10 shows us is that at the very least part of the answer to that question is that we don't read or do a good job reading our Old Testaments. Because there's pictures of God's grace and God's mercy all throughout Old Testament and New Testament. God is not schizophrenic. I want you to hear that. God is not schizophrenic. He's not a different God in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. God is a God of grace and mercy and compassion and justice and holiness in the New Testament and the Old Testament. He doesn't change from one season to the next. It wasn't like God said, well, let me, let me get to Jesus and now I'm gonna decide to be gracious and compassionate to everybody. No, he's always been a gracious and compassionate God. That's why he set up everything the way that it was to begin with so that it would culminate and reach its climax in the person of Jesus. God full of all kinds of grace, all kinds of mercy when the people turn to him. And so we see that in the Ninevites. Chapter four, verse one, how's Jonah respond to all of this? But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the, I hear chuckles. This is great, because this is, it's comedy. All All kinds of humor, all kinds of irony. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. So we learn for the very first time, Why Jonah never wanted to go to Nineveh in the first place and the reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh had everything to do with the fact that he would rather see Nineveh burn than to see the people turn to the Lord. Jonah hated the Ninevites so much, so much, he said, I don't want to go preach to the Ninevites because if they turn, God's going to show compassion. That's who God is. That's his character. That's his heart. And I don't want any peace of seeing God's grace go to the Ninevites. So how does God respond to Jonah's temper tantrum? Well, he asked him a question. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? And Jonah's response is deafening in its silence because he doesn't answer God's question at all. Can we just admit that if God asks you a question and you don't give him an answer, you're probably not in a great spot to begin with. So then what does Jonah do? Well, in verse five, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. I love this. Jonah goes and grabs a bag of popcorn. He says, I'm gonna hang out up here on this hill and just hope that maybe I got things wrong. maybe, Maybe something's gonna happen to this city. Anyway, I'm just gonna hang out here and I'm gonna watch just in case God chooses to change his mind or the people mess up again because I'm really hoping, I'm really hoping that something is gonna happen to these Ninevite people. So how does God respond to all of that? Well, God decides to give him an object lesson. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant, made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. So Jonah throws a temper tantrum, pounding his fists like a, like a toddler. And in verse nine, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? He asked that same question, but now he asks it about the plant. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, Jonah said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. And so our friend, Phil villain Jonah, is just beside himself, cannot take anymore. He's already upset at Nineveh, and now he's upset over the plant that grew up overnight, Then a worm came, killed the plant, and now he's so hot and so bothered and all kinds of frustration. And in verse 10, how does God respond to all of this? And how does the author close out the entire book? But the Lord said, "'You have been concerned about this plant, "'though you did not tend it or make it grow. "'It sprang up overnight and died overnight, And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. End scene, curtain close, end of the book, and I think that it is absolutely brilliant and masterfully done. God gives Jonah an object lesson with the plant. And he says to Jonah, Jonah, you're upset? You're angry about this plant? He said, yeah, I'm angry about the plant. And God says, if you can be angry about a plant, which you did not plant in the ground, you didn't water, you didn't feed, you didn't give it light, you did nothing to make it grow. If you have a right to be angry about that plant, then how much more How much more should I have the right to be angry over the destruction and the loss of 120,000 people, 120,000 people that I designed, that I created, that I fashioned inside of their mother's wombs, that I caused to grow, that I put my image inside of them that are the crowning achievement of my entire creation? 120,000 people, Jonah, of my people and the rest of all of creation inside of that city as well. If you have a right to be angry about the plant, then how much more should I be angry about the loss of all of those people? And Jonah never responds to God's ending. And now we see why Jonah is the villain in the book of Jonah. See, the author paints this absolutely brilliant picture by ending chapters three and four this way, paints this absolutely brilliant picture where the the audience can't help but see that the person who gets the most grace inside of the entire book of Jonah, it's not the pagan sailors who didn't die in a shipwreck. It's not the whale who got to get rid of Jonah because it couldn't take all that he was saying. It's not the Ninevite people. It's not the Ninevite king. It's Jonah himself. Jonah's the one in the book that receives the most grace because Jonah is constantly, constantly rebelling and turning against God, constantly pushing back, Constantly avoiding, constantly running away from everything that it is that God wants him to do in the way that God wants him to do it. And we as the audience can't help but be struck that this man who requires so much grace from God himself gets upset at the very grace that God is giving to other people. And I can't help but realize that the author is trying to tell you and me and all of us this. You will struggle giving God's grace until you see the grace God is already giving you. You will struggle giving others grace until you see the grace God is already giving you because the great lie that we all tell ourselves as we step into our circles and we see the ways that that we don't live the way that we're supposed to one of the things that we so often do is we try to white knuckle it when when I get in the car I try to think okay well I can't get frustrated don't get frustrated don't get angry don't get angry don't get angry and, and I try to come up with enough of this thing inside of me that's gonna overcome this frustration that I have around being in Charlotte traffic. And it sounds silly, but the reality is that it it, it shows something that's not good and healthy inside of me because I don't have grace for other people on the road. And so I try to white knuckle it. And, and what the author of Jonah is telling me and telling you and all of us is that The secret to unlocking grace for other people isn't inside of you. It's in the grace that God is giving you. It's in him. You see, we can't do enough on our own. We can't overcome the sin that so easily entangles every single one of us on our own. If we could, then the heavenly father should turn around to his son right now and say, I'm sorry, because there was no reason for me to send my son Jesus. But he did. He sent Jesus to overcome sin, to overcome death, to give us all kinds of grace. And when Jesus and other authors of the New Testament would talk about that kind of grace, The way that they would talk about it is is, is kind of, hey, if God's given you that much grace, if God's overcome you, then how can you not show grace to other people around you? You see, the the first step in giving grace to other people is is recognizing all of the ways that we need it ourselves to recognize that we're not perfect, that we need help, that we are broken. And when we recognize the kind of grace that God's giving us, and if he saved us from that much, then then how can we not have grace for others around us that need it? You'll struggle giving others grace until you see the grace that God is already giving you. And one of the ways that this has worked out for me is, is with my stepdad. When we were growing up, when, I, when we were growing up, when I, when I was growing up, I had all kinds of struggles with that relationship because I, I only saw it from one side. I, I always assumed that, that any area that me and my dad, we, we butt heads, I, I assumed that from his side that it was, it was willful ignorance about what I wanted in the relationship or, 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 or even worse, maybe it was contempt for me. And then, I grew up, and I had kids. And now, I see all of the ways that I don't have it together. I thought my dad had it together. But the reality is, at that time in his life, just like at this time in my life, I'm still trying to figure out how to raise a son. I'm still dealing with my own health issues. I'm still unpacking the things that I learned from my father. And and guess what? He was doing the same thing. He was struggling with how do I get through providing for my family when things aren't going the way that I expected them to? How how can I unpack the passing of my parents? How can I unpack how my father raised me and how I grew up and, and what should I pass on and what should I not pass on? Now, does that mean I'm not responsible for my actions with my kids or that he's not responsible with me? Absolutely not. We're responsible for how we respond to our children, but the reality is now, looking back, I've got so much grace for my dad. It's one of the reasons why he's one of my best friends and mentors now. You struggle giving grace to others until you see the grace God has already given you. So where is it for you? Is it in your marriage? You need to see the ways that, that you need grace from the Lord and from your spouse so that when your spouse needs it, you're willing to give it to them? Is it with your kids? Parents, is it with your parents? Is it with your coworkers? Is it with drivers, Charlotte roads? You'll struggle giving grace to others until you see the grace God has already giving you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for all of the ways that you give us your grace. Lord, I pray that everybody in this room, that we would all learn from the life of Jonah. That we would see the ways that our own lives require your grace. So that when we're in a position to need to give grace to others, we give it freely not because of what we've done, but out of an overflow of the love that you've poured into us and the grace that you've given us. Teach us. Teach us to rely on you. Teach us to rely on your grace so that we can give grace to others. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.